It is such a little thing, though. This tiny sprig of mistletoe cooed Loki through his scar-laced grin. Every being in the world has sworn never to harm the most beautiful amongst us, so of course he need fear nothing so minuscule. And so it came to pass that Balder, beloved amongst the gods, in turn embraced the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 51 of Embrace the Void. Our numerical rock is back down at the bottom of the hill where it belongs, but we are excited to start this grind all over again. I am your host, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my rock pusher, co-rock pusher, GW. How you doing, G-dubs? You're calling me a pusher? I think it was a drug pusher last time, wasn't it? Now it's a rock pusher. You do a lot of pushing, let's be honest. I mean, let's be really honest, I'm not a pusher. <laughs> You're a giver. That's what we should say, right? Yeah. Okay, I have to keep this very short for the sake of future GW because our fantastic interview today is really long and I don't want to make him have to cut any more than he has to. So, off we go. What's Chang doing? He's getting a refill on his void. So, uh, this week we are welcoming a most esteemed guest to our podcast, Professor Stephen Stitch, of uh, a professor of philosophy and cognitive science at Rutgers University who I had the pleasure of TAing for this past semester in his Human Nature and Diversity course, and who has graciously agreed to come on and talk about his experiences at the university and uh, many of the issues that he deals with, which are ones that we know y'all are very much interested in. So, um, Professor Stitch, would you like to say hi to the void? Oh, uh, hello. Uh, thank you very much. I don't, I don't think I've ever spoken to a void before. Yeah, it's a new experience for a lot of people when they come to the show, but it becomes pretty natural pretty quickly around here. Terrific. So, um, do you want to start maybe just giving our um, listeners a little bit of background on your sort of ac academic career and um, what kind of things you're into? Uh, well, my, my academic career has been uh, very varied. I'm something of a chameleon in uh, my research interests. I started uh, doing philosophy of language and linguistics. And then I moved uh, after about eight or 10 years into the philosophy of mind. And then about 20 years ago, I got interested in moral psychology. And um, for about the last 15 years, a major focus of my work has been the new field of uh, experimental philosophy. So those are the, the things I've done. Uh, one constant over at least the last uh, three decades uh, has been uh, the focus on cultural variation and exploring cultural variation. Um, and that's uh, recently played uh, an increasingly important uh, part of my uh, <clears throat> research agenda in my research agenda in experimental philosophy that, uh, as I think you know, uh, we have a uh, large research grant from the John Templeton Foundation that uh, will enable me, along with about 110 colleagues around the world, uh, to do a very systematic exploration of the ways in which philosophical concepts vary from culture to culture. Uh, so that's my research yeah. career. My teaching career um, is um, uh, much less variable. Uh, <laughs> I've been, been teaching for a long time. It's uh, just over 50 years. And uh, throughout that time, I've been teaching a course on the introduction to the problems of philosophy. Indeed, it was, I think, the first or second course I was assigned to teach when I started my teaching career at the University of Michigan in 1968. Uh, and I'm still teaching a successor of that very course, indeed, um, just um, 
A few weeks ago, uh, in collaboration with a, uh, a very gifted former graduate student, Tom Donaldson, uh, we published a, a textbook uh, called Philosophy, Asking Questions and Seeking Answers, which is really the textbook of my uh, Introduction to Problems of Philosophy course. So that's one thing I've been doing. And uh, again, on the, the heading of teaching, uh, from about 1975 uh, onward, uh, I have been teaching courses in contemporary moral issues. I think, I, I'm not sure about this, I've never really looked at the history of courses like this, which are now omnipresent at American universities, but I think my course at Michigan was one of the first of these that had ever been offered. Uh, and uh, that course uh, evolves considerably. Indeed, the course that you, Aaron, uh, TA'd for uh, is a successor to that course. Uh, but I've been teaching uh, variants on that course, again, for uh, by now 45 years. Wow. That's, uh, there's still a lot of stuff there. That's yeah. impressive. Do you have any thought questions, RGW? Not so, so far. Um, the first thought that jumped out to me when you were describing sort of your transition through your different topics um, is that before taking your course, it wouldn't have immediately occurred to me what the through line is through those different materials. But it seems like there probably is. Would, would you say, I guess, that like in your transition from language to philosophy of mind, was it that similar kind of interest in things like linguistic universals that transitioned over and then an, again into sort of universals of psychology is that another one of those through lines uh no i don't i don't really think so uh, no? mm -hmm. uh, that uh certainly um in a, a much more dominant uh theme in my career has been uh, with looking at uh the best of what science can tell us about how the mind works uh so Mm -hmm. uh, as a graduate student, um, I, in fact, went to uh, Princeton as a graduate student to uh, do the philosophy of science. But in my second year, I think it was, I was invited to a lecture. Um, and these were by invitation only. And uh, over the decades, I've tried to find out why I was invited. I think it was a mistake. I think, <laughs> I think they sent the invitation to the wrong person. Uh, but there was a series of lectures being given, uh, the Christian Gauss lectures, I think they were called, uh, by a guy I'd barely heard of named Noam Chomsky. <laughs> and uh, these, the Christian Gauss lectures are uh, the were the material that ultimately got published in Cartesian Linguistics and in the first chapter of Aspects of the Theory of Syntax. And it was, uh, it just blew me away uh, that there was Chomsky uh, in his uh, extraordinary uh, sort of calm matter of fact, uh, knocking over mountains uh, without batting an eyelash uh, uh, style, uh, making the argument that here is an issue that philosophers have been concerned about um, since antiquity, namely um, uh, the issue of the extent to which there are um, innate features of the human mind or innate knowledge, and we can now uh, address this issue empirically uh, using mm -hmm. methods of uh, what uh, now is called psycholinguistics, although uh, and and contemporary linguistics, although psycholinguistics had barely been coined as a term at that time. And more than that, in those years, a very extraordinary thing to say uh, that Chomp and to defend so forcefully. Uh, in those years, everybody was an empiricist. Everybody thought that, uh, with a few minor exceptions. Uh, the major components of the mind uh, were acquired from the environment, as Locke and Berkeley and Hume had, uh, had argued. And uh, Chomsky was saying, no, all those guys were right, and the they were wrong in the debate between uh, Locke and Leibniz. It's Leibniz who had the right uh, view, and there was an enormous amount of innate knowledge, and that got me basically hooked on understanding the ways in which the study of the mind empirically can bear on philosophical questions. So I went from mm -hmm. 
uh, philosophy of language and linguistics. I think I may have written the very first doctoral dissertation on the methodology of transformational linguistics. Um, and I spent oh, eight or so years worrying about those issues and mm -hmm. gradually became more and more interested in other aspects of the mind uh, and in cognitive science as it was beginning to be created in those years. And that's that's really been the the um, glue uh, putting the various pieces together. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um, oh, about twenty or so, twenty five years ago, uh, I became interested in moral psychology. But that's just uh, another way of asking how the empirical study of the mind can bear on important philosophical issues. Mm -hmm. And the experimental philosophy work, uh, experimental philosophy having been born uh, here at Rutgers and at Princeton maybe 15 or 18 years ago, uh, was still another way of using some of the techniques borrowed from psychology and other cognitive sciences to uh, explore philosophically important questions. Great. So that's sort of the major consistency what would you say are the things that have changed within like your courses or the way that you've addressed these issues or have there been sort of major shifts in um the theories themselves over the course of that time that that have really changed things for you well in my courses uh there have been uh inevitably i think uh given what I teach, namely, uh, almost every year, the Introduction to Philosophy course, uh, there are some real constants uh, that some of the material that I teach uh, to the freshmen today uh, is very similar to what I taught uh, the first time I taught the course at the University of Michigan 50 years ago. Um, it's important uh, that students uh, are aware of uh, the influential and deep arguments of people like Descartes and Hume uh, and others, of course. And those arguments haven't changed significantly over the last 50 years. Uh, so that material is quite, is quite constant. Uh, but as I mentioned, um, early on in my career, uh, I also started teaching courses in contemporary moral issues, and those courses have changed pretty dramatically, uh, that in the early years, um, topics uh, discussed in courses like that uh, were things like abortion and euthanasia and the death penalty. Um, and pretty soon, genetic engineering uh, and similar issues got uh, my attention and worked their way into my courses. But over the decades, uh, a large range of new issues have, uh, have appeared uh, on the scene and uh, been incorporated not only into my courses, but into the philosophical curriculum at colleges and universities all over the English-speaking world. The questions like race and ethnicity, mm -hmm. feminism, gay marriage, uh, the morality of eating meat versus vegetarianism, global warming, uh, and uh, a bit more recently, the dangers of artificial intelligence. Uh, all of these topics uh, got integrated, I think, originally as units in courses like uh, contemporary moral and social issues, and ultimately have turned into courses on their own, uh, some of which I occasionally teach. Uh, but uh, these are the kinds of courses that are taught uh, all over the English-speaking world. And do you think that it's a good thing that these things like the gender studies, forms of ethics have sort of branched off into their own subfields in that way? Oh, branched off into their own. Well, um, certainly uh, the fact that more people are focusing on them uh, and uh, that the arguments and research has become more subtle and sophisticated uh, inevitably means they're going to turn into their own subfields, whether they should be independent departments um, as you know, things like mm -hmm. studies sometimes become at universities, although not here at Rutgers. 
Um, that's less clear to me. Um, I'm inc <clears throat> inclined to think uh, that a lot of these topics would be dealt with better and are dealt with better if they're dealt with in the context of a, a philosophy department where people are uh, doing a wide range of more traditional things uh, mm -hmm. and that the traditional topics and the new ones can cross-fertilize each other. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious to know, um, in in teaching and talking about these like uh, these moral issues that essentially everyone is talking about in some level, not just in the classroom. Is there how like what te techniques do you use to make sure that like the environment, the class environment, stays you know not hostile or you know doesn't become into a bunch of screaming and that ever like is is that part of your class part of your training on how to talk about these difficult moral issues in in a uh respectful way um maybe aaron who has ta'd for me can answer mm -hmm. that question better than i can because all i can say that i am aware of actively doing uh, is um, I spend, and it can't be more than 90 seconds or two minutes during the first lecture, uh, explaining that we're going to be talking about controversial issues uh, and that all views are welcome and the only constraint is that people should uh, behave respectfully. But as I say, I say that in 90 seconds. I don't know, Aaron, do you even remember my... Yeah, it? it's, you know, that was exactly what I was going to point to, was that, that first minute and a half, yeah. But the issue never arises uh, again. And um, surprisingly, uh, particularly in the last year or two, I've gotten a number of questions uh, like the one you've asked about uh, how to uh, keep the... Uh, atmosphere in these classes um, uh, respectful and focused and uh, not have people screaming at one another? And the answer is uh, that I don't have a technique for doing that. It's just never, ever been an issue um, that uh, uh, people disagree. Um, people sometimes fall asleep, of course. Uh, but uh, I've just never had uh, problems of that sort of teaching uh, what I uh, recognize as widely regarded as controversial material. What about, and I'm not, not sure if you're allowed to talk about this, but have you ever been approached in more quiet kind of ways and been asked to like not teach this thing or teach this thing differently or, you know, either from students or have you ever felt any sort of pressure to ease off of a certain subject? Yeah, interestingly, the answer is absolutely not. Um, mm. There was one episode uh, just this last year uh, which touched upon the topic, but not, the, uh, not from the direction you were suggesting. Uh, so one of our better students came by and uh, talked to me during office hours. And after we discussed some of the material in the course, uh, on his way out, he said, uh, so I have one more question for you, which is, um, uh, do you uh, ever get in trouble for teaching uh, this sort of material? Uh, and uh, the question came as a real surprise to me because the answer was, no, absolutely not. Uh, quite, quite the opposite uh, that... Um, the Rutgers administration, my, my colleagues in the philosophy department, uh, I don't think care very much what I teach, frankly, uh, so long as the classrooms are filled. Uh, but the Rutgers administration has been remarkably supportive uh, of my human nature and human diversity course. Um, this coming academic year, I'm, I'm on leave in the fall term, and I uh, was uh, supposed to be teaching the Introduction to Problems of Philosophy course in the spring term when I come back from my leave. Uh, but the Dean of Undergraduate Education uh, emailed me and she asked me whether I'd be willing to teach the Human Nature and Human Diversity course again in the spring of, I guess it's 2019. 
uh, because uh, they viewed it as uh, such an important course. So far from getting any any pushback, um, there's just never been an issue. Uh, mm. uh, I don't know. That's I don't great. know whether that's a fact about me or uh, <laughs> I think part of it is, speaks very much to Rutgers credit uh, that Rutgers has a long uh, tradition and a proud tradition of um, entertaining a wide spectrum of, of views. Um, remember Paul Robeson was, mm-hmm. was a Rutgers student. So it's funny to me that you say that you were surprised by the question, because I would imagine you're at least peripherally aware that there's a lot of talk these days about liberal campus crazies preventing the discussion of dangerous truths, that kind of conversation. Are you are you aware of that's happening? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, and um, uh, as I say, it's never, never uh, impacted on anything I've done or uh, come anywhere near my classrooms. <laughs> Uh, and, um, well, uh, that, uh, come to think of it, uh, there was one episode, it's now two or three or four years ago, uh, which, which did surprise me and engendered a little bit of controversy along those lines that I'd, I'd in fact, forgotten about. Uh, so, uh, one of the um, major figures at Rutgers for most of the years I've been here is a guy named Lionel Tiger. He was uh, one of the uh, people who started the Rutgers Anthropology Department. That's got to be 45 or 50 years ago. And he was an early contributor to uh, what had be- what turned into the field of sociobiology. Uh, it didn't even have that name when Lionel started doing it. Uh, but Lionel, in collaboration, uh, and this is true and slightly humorous, by the way, his name really is Lionel Tiger. And he, through much of his career, collaborated on very interesting and important work with another very well-known Rutgers faculty mem- member, Robin Fox. So, uh, um, you know, you can't make stuff like that. Fox and Tiger. Fox, Fox and Tiger. But it's not just Fox and Tiger. It's Lionel Tiger and Robin Fox. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, uh, Lionel retired maybe five years ago uh, and had given a couple of guest lectures in my course before he retired. And I persuaded him to, as it were, come out of retirement, come on down to New Brunswick. He lives in New York and give a guest lecture in the human nature and human diversity course. Uh, and he said some controversial things uh, about uh, the inevitable implications, as he saw it, of uh, things uh, like co-ed housing and the uh, likelihood that co-ed housing would uh, increase unfortunate interactions between male and female students. And uh, uh, none of the students complained, but my TAs, or at least several of my TAs, uh, were really quite upset by what Lionel said. Uh, and asked to produce a rebuttal, which I thought was fine. So I invited them to uh, to produce a rebuttal and make it available to the students. Uh, but it turned out people uh, were very unclear about what exactly Lionel had said uh, and how inflammatory his comments had been. Fortunately, um, in those years, uh, I had uh, a little bit of a budget, and many of these guest lectures, I typically have five, six, seven guest lectures every semester in the Human Nature and Human Diversity course. Uh, many of them were being videotaped. So we had a tape, uh, and professionally videotaped. Uh, there's an mm-hmm. organization on campus that brings in a professional videographer and a sound engineer, and we get some pretty high-quality tapes. Uh, so we had the tape, and one of the TAs volunteered to sit down and uh, prepare a transcript of the tape. And it turned out uh, that many of the putatively inflammatory things uh, that uh, some of the TAs were attributing to Lionel, uh, he never actually said. Mm-hmm. 
That's great. I think that's the 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 closest I've ever come to anybody being, to my knowledge, uh, upset by what went on uh, in the class discussing controversial issues. That's that's a really great story. It's interesting the way that that worked out too. That it it managed to be resolved in a a functional kind of way. I didn't realize that rebuttals to your classes was an option when I was a TA. I don't think you really publicized that option quite as much as maybe you could have. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. It was a great class. <laughs> <laughs> that little dig. <laughs> it never has been an option that complaints. Uh, you know, particularly these were complaints from. Um, three or four of the TAs, or all of them uh, that term women. Uh, so I mm-hmm. definitely be taken very, very seriously indeed. And uh, they prepared a rebuttal to what they thought Lionel had said. Uh, and I could certainly see how you might interpret him that way. But when you sat down and looked at the transcript, and we knew the transcript was accurate, as I said, because we had the tapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had never said uh, quite the sort of inflammatory things. Uh, they they took him to be uh, suggesting uh, that um, uh, sexual harassment or rape was inevitable in a uh, and perhaps excusable in a context uh, like the ones we've created with co-ed residences. And uh, what Lionel uh, said was that it was predictable uh, that that the likelihood of such events would increase, uh, but he never said anything uh, suggesting that these events were justifiable. I think that's... The the theme was, hey, if you want to prevent this, you don't put 19-year-old men and 19-year-old women uh, together living in the same dormitory. What's really great about that is, you know, these students had a disagreement with your assessment and then they used the same tools that you've been teaching them to make an argument uh, against it. And it just it can like it just sounded like a fantastic educational experience for them, even if at the end they still disagreed, like regardless the process is like exactly what you're trying to teach. No, I, I, I think great. that's right. And um, uh, Lionel uh, is notorious for being a sort of loose cannon, particularly now that he's retired. Uh, he can say what he wants, uh, right? Uh, and uh, despite that, if I could persuade him to do this every year, or not that particular talk, of course, but to just come down and say something controversial every year, I'd be delighted to do it. Um, I haven't Mm -hmm. been able to persuade him to do that in the last couple of years. Uh, He's, Lionel's getting on, he's north of 80 at this point. Uh, So it's increasingly difficult for him to do that. I also really like this particular story because it's sort of a textbook example of what I think is often the problem in these outrage sorts of situations. And I'm, you know, I would identify as a social justice warrior. I'm sympathetic to the problem. I'm also, I I see a reoccurring theme where we often have these conflations between saying something is predictable or saying something might be universal. And then that slides into saying that it is justifiable or it is necessary or we have to accept it or it can't be um, mutable in some kind of way. The same thing that when we talk about things being like genetic versus being culturally educated, that people often conflate that with saying, well, it's unchangeable just because it's part of our it's, it's more based in the DNA than based in the, the programming at this point. Well, I, I agree that, that um, there's a crucial difference uh, between uh, debating and looking at the evidence uh, for and against uh, empirical claims and uh, then uh, base, on the basis of those empirical claims coming to Uh, conclusions about appropriate social policy or uh, moral questions more generally. And one of the things that uh, I like to stress as strongly as I can and build into the structure of my courses is that 
the way to address the factual debates is to review the evidence uh, and um, get as deeply into the evidence on both sides as you can and let the facts turn out to be what they are, uh, that we're always better off basing our moral decisions and our policy decisions on the best and most accurate account of the empirical facts that we can come up with. Uh, so the um, inclination or the, the practice uh, that has been in the news uh, increasingly in the last two, three, four years of trying to shout down people whose uh, empirical claims one doesn't agree with uh, strikes me as one of the most unfortunate features of the contemporary academic world. Uh, and one of the things that my courses are aimed uh, <clears throat> head on against that the strategy is let's find out what the facts are and against the background of those facts, we can debate uh, <clears throat> moral issues and policy questions. Uh, but the idea that the factual debates should become politicized uh, is, I think, uh, a terrible uh, turn of events that we've seen uh, increasingly over the last three, four, five years. What would you say, if you don't want to, you know, if you're feeling good about your job security, what would you say are the, the empirical factual claims that might some might consider very controversial that you feel pretty comfortable saying that you're sympathetic to, at least uh, having looked at the data yourself? Are there any ones that you feel like? Oh, well, uh, sure, there, uh, I'm, I'm not a good, uh, let me take a step back, I'm not good at assessing uh, what uh, people find uh, controversial or inflammatory, because as I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, this just is never an issue uh, in my courses or the people I interact with are rarely an issue, uh, but, um, well, I can... Uh, two issues to, to contrast here, one uh, about gender differences and another uh, about uh, racial differences. Um, in one case, uh, I think uh, the claims uh, are uh, true and the evidence supports them. Uh, that's on the gender or sex differences, I think is the best way to, to characterize this because mm -hmm. uh, there are discussions about what gender is and how many of them there are, but uh, the evolutionary psychologists uh, and uh, their intellectual successors have been arguing for 40 years now that there are important differences between the sexes uh, in humans. Uh, there are obviously uh, uncontroversially uh, physiological differences between the sexes, but the evolutionary psychologists have been arguing that there are psychological differences between the sexes as well. And uh, by now, I think there's uh, um, a fair amount of uh, evidence that this is clearly correct. Indeed, it would be sort of astonishing if it weren't correct, uh, right? Uh, that mm -hmm. um, uh, after all, there are uh, clear uh, psychological and behavioral differences between the sexes in our closest primate uh, relatives. Um, and uh, the biology of the two sexes are remarkably different. Uh, mm -hmm. So, of course, there are going to, not of course, but it's, uh, it's extremely likely that there are going to be psychological differences between uh, sexes. Uh, the real question is to determine uh, what they are uh, and uh, what the implications of that are for individual behavior, policy differences, and, and so on. Um, uh, so I suppose uh, that uh, claim that there are important psychological differences between the sexes uh, counts as under your heading of uh, controversial. Uh, but uh, the way I deal with these uh, in my courses is, first of all, to look at the evidence, and I take uh, the evidence at this point to be um, for some differences, uh, some claimed differences but not others, to be overwhelmingly clear. 
uh, and other claimed differences, uh, the evidence tends to disappear when you look at it more carefully or tends to be un not at all persuasive when you look at it more carefully. Uh, but uh, one case, uh, Aaron, as you will remember, uh, when and I spend whatever, two, three weeks on this in, in uh, my uh, Human Nature and Human Diversity course uh, of sex psychological sex differences, one of the uh, things we discuss is the so-called sexual overperception bias. Uh, and this is something that was predicted uh, by evolutionary psychologists from, as it were, the logic of um, uh, evolution and natural selection, uh, that uh, men should be more likely to think that women are sexually interested in them uh, than they are, and women should not uh, experience that, uh, manifest that bias at all, uh, well, that's a theoretical prediction. It's a theoretical prediction uh, based on uh, arguments about uh, reproductive strategies and reproductive success, uh, reproductive success in our uh, hominid forebears. Uh, but it's a theoretical prediction, and then a number of folks went out and designed experiments uh, to try to determine whether it's true. And it is true uh, that uh, males, but not females, tend to have uh, a seriously exaggerated perception of uh, the interest that uh, uh, females, the sexual interest that females have in them. Um, well, uh, no, this, this ties in beautifully with, a. am sorry, say again. No, I was just going to say, uh, this is a, a great study to bring up. It ties in beautifully with the episodes we just did a little while ago on incels and, uh, how men often feel like women are, dra um, uh, uh, dragging them along or friend zoning them or things like that. Yeah, well, uh, the, you know, what I do in, in the course is, um, first of all, give the theoretical underpinnings uh, for predictions about differences between the sexes, particularly in mating strategies, child-rearing strategies, and so on, and then look at the empirical evidence insofar as we have any. And this case is one I stress in particular because... There's a fair amount of empirical evidence, a fair amount of experimental evidence, some of it cross-cultural, not as cross-cultural as I'd like, but there are studies in uh, the United States, in Brazil, and a few other countries, and they all come out the same. And uh, this is important, uh, I think, not only as an illustration of the fact that there are these kinds of uh, differences that uh, background theory leads you to predict, uh, but it's also important for the young men in the class to understand uh, that uh, for um, uh, well-studied uh, biological reasons or evolutionary reasons, they are inclined to misjudge something. And when you know you're inclined to misjudge something, maybe, if we're lucky, uh, you can uh, correct for that. Uh, so, mm -hmm. as oh, uh, this is an example that dates me. I, I realize my my uh, undergraduate students, maybe even you guys, don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, but there used to be these things called mercury vapor lamps that were used in parking lots, uh, and they changed the visual appearance of your car, so your car doesn't look the color it usually does. Huh. Uh, and once you know that your perception is being distorted in that way, you're better off finding your car in a parking lot. Uh, similarly, uh, once you know that you're likely to overestimate the interest uh, that a woman is, has in you sexually, uh, that uh, no guarantee that it's going to uh, prevent uh, young men from behaving inappropriately, uh, but it at least um, reduces the probability, I think, that they will behave inappropriately, or at least gives them tools to reduce the probability that they'll behave inappropriately. Uh, so, oh, <clears throat> let's see, where did we get into this? You asked about uh, controversial topics uh, where 
uh, some of the uh, what I take to be. And uh, remember, my strategy is uh, that uh, we should sharply distinguish the empirical findings uh, from policy implications or moral implications uh, to be uh, drawn from uh, those uh, empirical facts, that the empirical facts inform but don't decide the policy uh, implications or the moral implications uh, of the facts. Uh, And you were asking which of these factual claims uh, look to be controversial, um, and uh, these are ones that look to be, I suppose, Mm -hmm. be controversial, uh, and which nonetheless I take to be true. Uh, The the other side of the the story, uh, again, as you'll know, Aaron, because we we spent, unfortunately, not enough time on this Mm -hmm. last time around, but uh, I will rejigger the, the... the syllabus, so we have more time to do it, uh, the question of, of race and IQ, uh, where, again, uh, a terribly hot-button issue, uh, where uh, empirical claims have been made uh, that turn out to be interesting and important and false. And the way to show that they're false isn't to shout down the speaker, it's to assemble the evidence. Yeah, I, I think that's a really valuable contrast between sort of those those gender um, realism issues versus the race realism issues. And I think it's great to be able to see that within a course like this, you can it's okay to come down one way on one side and, and a different way on a different thing. I feel like a lot of times part of the issue is that people get into a mindset where you know, if this sounds like this, this was this was my feeling with like the Sam Harris and you had um, Nisbet in the course as a lecturer. He was one of the people who, who got Sam Harris quite angry at, at um, Ezra Klein and those individuals, because I think Sam Harris has a bad habit of thinking, well, anyone who's under fire for any controversial claim must be under attack in the same way that someone who has a real strong case and is just being shouted down is under attack. And that this kind of does it, it doesn't allow us to take a nuanced position where we can say there might be distinct dis- differences between the genders, but not distinct differences between the races. And we need to be able to explore all of that without even dipping our toe initially into the policy. And then we need to talk about how this could be misused in various policy ways. Do you, would you say that you sort of agree with that? I couldn't agree more that mm-hmm. uh, the the, uh, the race and IQ issue uh, is a a really deeply important and troubling one. So what are the facts? Uh, Well, the facts are that there is a substantial difference in mean or average IQ between white Americans and black Americans. Uh, It's important to point out that that difference has been shrinking uh, over the last 25 or 30 years, but it's still there. And it's still important. And then the question that demands answering is why? Because if we don't know why, uh, then we're flying blind in developing policies to deal with that fact. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we have to look at the question, why does this, why is this IQ gap there? And as you know about, oh, by this point, 25, maybe 30 years ago, a number of people, uh, including very notably uh, Charles Murray and Richard Ernstein, uh, created a great stir by saying, look, um, IQ is largely heritable, and uh, went on to conclude that a significant part of the IQ difference between uh, white Americans and black Americans was genetic. And of course, if it's genetic, uh, then that constrains in a variety of ways what you can do to deal with the problem. Uh, And and this, of course, led to enormous controversies. Um, I can remember, it's back when I was still at 
Michigan, I think, Herrenstein was being shouted down at, uh, and I met him once and, and he told me that uh, for five or eight years uh, he couldn't give a public talk because it was being shouted down. Uh, but that seems to me to be exactly the wrong way to deal with views like that. The right way to deal with them uh, is the way that uh, Richard Nisbet has, and many others, but Nisbet's my, my own personal favorite here. Uh, Nisbet uh, went out and looked very carefully at the evidence and the uh, arguments uh, and the data analysis that had been put forward uh, by Herrnstein and Murray and Jensen and a bunch of others. These were not the only people pushing uh, this line uh, and uh, wrote this extraordinarily important book uh, and wrote it in a way that it can be read by undergraduates. It can be read, it wasn't <laughs> to be read by the uh, average literate reader. It's not a book for academics, uh, his book, Intelligence and How to Get It. And what Nisbet argues uh, there is uh, that the black-white IQ gap has nothing whatever to do with genetics. Uh, it is entirely the product of dramatically different educational and social environments confronted by black and white Americans. Now, you don't get that conclusion for free. Uh, you don't get that conclusion by shouting down the opposition. You don't get that conclusion because it's politically what liberal-minded folks would like it to be. Um, those are all the wrong ways to defend those conclusions. The way you get that conclusion is to do what Nisbet does in the book, that look very systematically uh, at uh, the evidence we have available. And Nisbet also makes you know, an uncomfortable case, because one of the things that people have often said is IQ doesn't matter. It doesn't measure anything important. Nisbet starts out the book by saying, oh, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. In our culture, it correlates strongly uh, with uh, what your life prospects and job opportunities are going to be. Uh, so uh, a 15-point IQ gap on average between white Americans and black Americans is an enormously important social phenomenon. But then he goes on to start looking at the data uh, and the arguments that have been offered uh, for explaining the IQ gap and points out that uh, overwhelmingly the data support the claim that it has not only less to do with genetics than Herrnstein and Murray uh, suggested and that people like Jensen suggested, but it has nothing at all to do with genetics. Genetics has nothing to do with it uh, and that the uh, IQ gap can be completely erased uh, by changing social conditions and addressing uh, the uh, deficits that uh, uh, black Americans face uh, as the heritage of discrimination and slavery. And that, I mean, the, the, message, the message for the students, mm -hmm. the, the thing I hoped I conveyed, and we'll try to convey even more as I uh, shoehorn more of this and snip out something or other next time I teach the course, uh, is that's the way the issue has to be addressed. Uh, not uh, The factual issues are not going to be addressed uh, uh, by uh, political agitation. They have to be addressed uh, by carefully examining what the facts are. It sounds like the overarching sort of theme or uh, I guess general philosophy that you have is both in the examples that you just gave and in from your uh, examples of your course that it's it's through engaging in the conversations and in, in steel manning the uh, the arguments and then seeing if those arguments are valid or not and assessing their validity based on using data using facts in order to do so. You know, uh, yes, uh, I guess I'd, I'd like to uh, frame uh, the, the endeavor in less philosophically uh, loaded jargon. It's not so much, of course, there is a fair amount of 
looking at the validity of the arguments. And in some cases, for example, in the race and IQ debate, um, a problem is basically invalid arguments, arguing from the high heritability of IQ, uh, and it is indeed highly heritable in certain uh, subcultures in the United States, uh, the high heritability of IQ to the genetic involvement of IQ, that's an invalid argument. And once you understand what heritability means, you see that it doesn't follow. But more important than that uh, in uh, what I try to convey to the students is to separate uh, the factual claims from the questions of uh, public policy and uh, morality uh, that should be informed by the factual claims, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, what we need to do is look at the best science we have, which doesn't always settle the matter because uh, we may still need to do further work, but look at the best science we have to answer the factual or the empirical questions, and then ask against that background, uh, now that we've got a good idea of what the factual situation is, what the empirical facts are, uh, what are the policy alternatives uh, and which ones uh, are best from our moral or political perspective. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, uh, there's a few more questions I just wanted to dive in a little bit on before we run out of time. Have you ever run up against postmodernism as a problem in academia for you? That's that's a, that's a boogeyman that I think often gets brought out, and I'm just I'm genuinely curious if it's been an issue in your experience at all. Um, well, postmodernism, of course, is is a, a broad category or a mixed right. There, there's a world of difference between Dick Rorty uh, and Jacques Derrida, uh, but um, the short answer to your question is is no. It's never been. A, a problem for me. Um, I think uh, this last term, for the first time ever, uh, I think you were in class at the time, uh, some student raised his hand and asked about postmodernism, and I, I mm -hmm. missed it. but that's the first time it's ever been raised. Uh, I've had um, interesting uh, cocktail party uh, uh, conversations with very good, uh, esteemed colleagues in the English department, for example, uh, who were tempted by postmodernism. But uh, this has <laughs> never been uh, something I had particularly to confront uh, head on. Um, I think we are confronting it as a culture indirectly uh, because uh, this idea that certain strands of postmodernism um, attack uh, or challenge uh, the idea that there are objective truths and they are discoverable. Not that every question we ask has an objective answer, uh, but uh, on issues like uh, the extent to which uh, genetic factors play a role in the uh, IQ difference between black white Americans and white Americans, or uh, a whole range of other empirical questions about, uh, about uh, sex and uh, gender uh, and uh, other hot-button issues. The idea uh, that uh, there are objective answers might be indirectly being challenged, certainly not in my courses. I mean, it just, I, I can't tell you why, but it never, it never happens. Uh, but I think it does happen in the society at large. Uh, and this is a deeply unfortunate fact uh, because there's a, a sense in which uh, the postmodernists uh, have paved the road uh, for uh, <clears throat> the politicians like Donald Trump uh, who feel free to make up whatever facts they want. Yeah, there's, a, there's an unfortunate coming together of 
uh, the the parts of postmodernism that are useful for deconstructing our preconceptions and our biases, which I think you would say are, are valuable, but then those can be taken to a very nihilistic place where you can you can become you know a sophist, right? You can say everything is just what you can argue for, or something like that, and that can be a very problematic um, sort of retrograde for the discourse. Um, so. Great. There was one other thing that I just wanted to to dive into just a, just a little bit uh, while I was reading into your background a little bit more. We didn't get into this in your course, but you did a bit of work on um, eliminative uh, kind of uh, materialism with regard to minds. And our audiences are often very interested in uh, realism with regard to minds and dualist problems. We've talked, we've done a few episodes on things like that. So uh, I was just curious if you could say a little bit about sort of what your evolution has been in the philosophy of mind with regard to the existence of minds? Yeah, well, I was, I was an early eliminative materialist. Um, and uh, as a graduate student, I had taken courses with Dick Rorty at around the time he was playing with eliminativism. Uh, I spent uh, a few years uh, on the faculty at the University of California, San Diego, and uh, Pat and Paul Churchland were colleagues, uh, and uh, we shared uh, many interests and arguments, uh, but, and I was certainly tempted for a while uh, by the core eliminativist argument uh, that I think has been put most forcefully and, and effectively by Paul Churchland, uh, who argues that um, common sense mental concepts, belief, desire, hope, fear, and so on, uh, the entire array of common sense mental concepts are uh, theoretical, couldn't be viewed as theoretical posits uh, in a folk theory uh, about the nature of the mind. Uh, that's certainly uh, very plausible, and I think remains very plausible. Uh, Paul Churchland then goes on to argue, uh, or did, uh, started arguing this 40-ish years ago, uh, that uh, we have increasing reason to believe that uh, that folk theory of the mind is false, that um, neuroscience in particular, uh, that was the angle that Paul and Pat Churchland came to it from, neuroscience is increasingly showing us that um, the the mind doesn't work that way, as Fodor uh, uh, put it in a very different context. That is to say uh, that the brain uh, uh, doesn't do what common sense psychology says the mind does. Uh, the behavior controlling mechanisms just aren't looking the way uh, folk psychology says they should. Uh, well, that led the controversy into two directions. Uh, one was uh, the bigger direction uh, that was certainly a Rutgers theme for my first 20 plus years here because Jerry Fodor was, of course, uh, the famous philosopher who built the, whose reputation built the Rutgers department, who was the magnet for many of the other uh, very excellent philosophers who have since come to Rutgers. Uh, and Jerry attacked the first part of the, the Churchland argument. He said that no, uh, the uh, neuroscience and the psychology is not significantly challenging the folk theory of the mind. Uh, but there was this other part of the argument, and it was the other part of the argument where uh, I originally was tempted and uh, ultimately got persuaded it was wrong. Uh, and that is, well, suppose everything I've said so far, or everything Churchland says so far is right, namely that uh, the uh, concepts, the posits of common sense, uh, or uh, of common sense psychology, are the posits of a folk theory of the mind, that belief and desire and hope and fear and expectation, dread, what have you, uh, and love and hate, all of these are posits of a folk theory. And just for argument's sake, suppose that it's also the case 
uh, that that folk theory is seriously mistaken. Well, Churchland used to like to compare it to phlogiston theory, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, what do we conclude in the case of phlogiston theory? We conclude that phlogiston doesn't exist. Uh, well, that's the second part of the argument. That's really the eliminativist part uh, that says, well, if common sense psychology is shown to be seriously mistaken by uh, contemporary neuroscience or contemporary psychology, for that matter, uh, then uh, the correct conclusion should be the posits of common sense psychology don't exist. And that originally struck me, uh, that inference uh, from those two premises to that conclusion uh, struck me as a good one. Uh, and indeed, I wrote a book, uh, my, my first book, uh, From Folk Psychology to Cognitive Science, which developed that argument in some detail. But after the book was published, I began having doubts, uh, not about the two premises. Uh, I had some doubts about those as well, but I put those off to the side. Uh, I had doubts about uh, drawing the conclusion from the premises. Um, so if common sense psychology turns out to be seriously mistaken, and if uh, the <clears throat> concepts uh, of uh, common sense psychology, belief, desire, hope, and fear, and so on, are posits of a common sense theory, should we conclude that they don't exist? And it uh, turns out, uh, I think, uh, that that argument simply doesn't work. Uh, there's no direct inference from the falsehood of the theory to the non-existence of the things the theory is talking about. So I picked that up and ran with it uh, in a second book called Deconstructing the Mind, uh, where I tried to push as hard as I could on can you get the eliminativist conclusions from the eliminativist premises, granting for argument's sake uh, that the eliminativist premises are correct. And I concluded that you can't. So I stopped hmm. being an eliminativist. Take that, eliminativists. In your faces. That's a really great story. Thank you. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, it's so... I feel like it's a rare story, right? I think... You might agree that in the history of philosophy, there's often a, a habit of staking out a position for one's life and making your career on that, and that people sometimes maybe evolve very, very far down the line. But it's nice, I think, to see that that right after writing that, you were immediately thinking, well, what do I, am I really right about this? Yeah, well, it's it's been my, um, I was going to say practice, but it's not really a practice. It's just the way my thinking has unfolded uh, that I change my mind a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. so I started out being a limitist and changed my mind on eliminativism. And I've uh, published lots of uh, <clears throat> arguments uh, where uh, not only in this area, but in other areas of philosophy and areas of moral psychology and uh, recently um, in experimental philosophy, uh, in the experimental epistemology literature, where uh, I published uh, some influential articles arguing on one side of the debate and then came to realize either because of a deeper reflection on the arguments or coming in the case of uh, the empirical, uh, the experimental philosophy of epistemology, uh, some additional data coming in uh, that it was wrong. So mm -hmm. uh, I published articles uh, arguing that the earlier view by the stitch guy is mistaken. Maybe we can link some of those in the show notes. Um, unfortunately, I think we are out of time and need to wrap up. This has been really wonderful. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all these great stories. Uh, is there anything that you might like to plug for our audience members to go check out? A recent book, a recent article? Uh, go see you in Ann Arbor soon, I hear. Uh, yeah, well, um, uh, I, I guess the thing I'd, I'd plug most, I don't know whether I, I guess I mentioned this right at the beginning of our discussion, uh, but what I've been uh, most actively engaged in recently uh, is uh, exploring the extent to which important philosophical concepts, concepts like knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and moral concepts as well, vary across cultures. And we now have um, uh, the wherewithal to really 
dig deep on this issue, uh, we, the we being myself and a colleague at the University of Pittsburgh, Edward Mashery, and another colleague at UCLA, Clark Barrett, uh, have a multi-million dollar grant uh, from the Templeton Foundation. Uh, you can go on the internet and uh, find our grant webpage, where what we'll be doing is looking in 10 very different cultures around the world at how things, important philosophical ideas like knowledge are understood. Are they universals uh, or are they not? Um, so we'll know a lot more in three years than we know now. That sounds very postmodern of you. I think we should definitely have you back on in three years while we're still doing the show to tell us about your results. I'm excited to hear about it. Oh, if it's very postmodern, I'll stop doing it. Uh, stop immediately, right? <laughs> it's so hot right now, though. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Professor Stitch, for joining us. This was really wonderful, and I, I'm, I'm sure folks are going to love it. And uh, good luck with your talks and with your research, and I'll see you around the water cooler. That's good. Yeah, thanks so much. My pleasure. Bye now. <laughs>